Hello and welcome to the very first Tate Talk podcast. I'm your host, Callan Tate, and I cannot put that into words how excited I am to finally get this off the ground and finally bring you something that I've had in the works for a wee while now. So, you will be asking, well, what is Tate Talk? Well, what that is, is what I'm hoping to be anyway, is a platform for honest conversation. You know, today we get all our information, all our news from the likes of social media where we're trying to cram important issues into, you know, 280 characters or something like that. So I wanted to bring this to you in a, a new platform where you listen to the news be brought to you by hopefully what you find is a friendly voice. And, you know, I do have a speech impediment, so you might not even understand what I'm saying. I don't blame you. But anyway, what I'm looking to do long term here is to split each episode, as it is, into two halves. The first half is going to be dedicated to talking about some of the main issues. Now, today's podcast is going to be solely talking about the recent result of the election in Scotland. But if we were talking about it in a, what I'd hope would be an honorary show, we'd be talking about maybe the Palestine conflict that's going on. We'd be talking about the David Cameron inquiry that happened yesterday. Just in general, some of the, the main issues that are going on. So the second half would then be me ho- answering to what would hopefully be people submitting questions. Because it's all well and good. You know, I'm talking for an hour, two hours, whatever it is. But ultimately, that might not be about what you guys want to listen to. I mean, I could talk your head off a you know, two days straight about how terrible Kilmarnock Football Club are. But you guys don't maybe want to listen to that, or maybe you do. So I want the conversation to be driven by you guys, the listeners. And so how do you submit a question into the show to contribute to the conversation? Well, it's really rather simple. You can follow us at Twitter or Facebook at the very simple name of Tate Talk, that's T8 Talk, and then you can send me a private message or a DM, or you can email me directly at the email address tatetalk at outlook.com. So it's really rather simple, but I want this to be driven by you guys, because you're the folks that matter, and so I want to make sure that your voices are heard on this show. So feel free to submit a question, and if it's appropriate, it will feature on the show, and I'll get a, a wee opportunity just to answer it as well. So, with all that down, I want to just get fired straight into the main topic, which you might get from the title of this video, is all about the 2021 Scottish election. And I must read disclaimer. If you hear me taking a break, that's because I'm having a sip of water or a drink of my tea. Because I'm, I don't know how long I'm going to be talking for, but I don't know also how long my voice is going to last. So I'm going to need to take little breaks here and there. So forgive me if that happens. But going straight into the main topic, some general thoughts, and then we're going to get we're going to dive into the individual results of the parties and then 
we're going to end on what the kind of effects of this, you know, what can we expect in the next five years of the Scottish Government? So, some general thoughts. This election was amazingly anticlimactic. All beforehand, we were talking about how the SNP might get a, you know, a majority, or the Greens are going to do really well, or it's going to be a disaster for the Tories. Oh, maybe Alaba will get a few seats. Maybe even George Galloway, the madman that he is, is going to get a few seats. And in the end, we ended up in a parliament that is pretty much the same as the one we had before. All in all, there's been three seat changes really across the parties and so we've ended up in kind of the similar situation that we were before. So very anticlimactic, especially when it was put across two days. I don't know about you guys, but I like the experience of, you know, polling day happens and then you're up all night watching and waiting for the results coming in. The fact that it happened over two days, by the second day, I mean, I love politics, but even that was a bit bored. Especially when you know what the final results going to end up being, and then especially when it's something as boring as what it transpired to be. So, really quite anticlimactic, but there were a few kind of general things that were really exciting to see. First of all, it was a record turnout for devolution, and that's always good. Recently devolution's been at around maybe 55% or something like that. But what happened in 2014 was that 84% turned out for the referendum. And ever since then, Scotland has seen really high turnouts. And that's a fantastic thing to see, that so many people are engaging in the political process. Because I'm of the mind that, see, if you don't contribute, you can't complain. And how many of you have aunties or uncles or that mad guy you went to school with who complain endlessly about we nippy or the console. And is that what you ask them? Well, who'd you vote for? Oh, didn't they vote? Well, how are you complaining then? You can't contribute. Well, you can't complain if you don't actively try and contribute to the conversation. You're just moaning for the sake of moaning. So it's so good to see that so many people, especially young people, are engaging in the process because ultimately it's our lives that are you know to be decided here so why shouldn't as many of us as possible be talking and engaging about that process and then we also had the election of the first wheelchair disabled woman of color and if i get her name right it is pam duncan clancy who is a Labour MSP, and we also had the election of the first woman of colour in Cocab Stewart, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who was voted in with the SNP. And Stewart herself actually had a really interesting story because she ran in 1999, which was the first election of devolution, and she was running against Donald Dewar, who ultimately came up, became the first First Minister, and at the time, you know, running as a female woman of colour, she didn't think that, you know, nearly over 20 years on, it would be her who would become the first female woman of colour in Parliament. 
And so it has taken a long time. And like she mentioned herself, she may be the first, but she surely will not be the last. And the same with Pam Duncan Clancy. And I'm not one of these people who believes that representation in Parliament is everything. Ultimately, competency and ability matter more. But having a representative Parliament is a little extra. And Duncan Clancy posted a video actually on her social media where I think it was um, a, a mother was showing a disabled child footage of you know Pam getting sworn into Parliament and it was really quite an emotional thing. So these things do matter. Unfortunately, from because Stuart and Duncan Clancy were both interviewed on the BBC. Uh, Stuart, unfortunately, was interviewed just after she'd been elected, so she was a bit flustered, as you can imagine. But Pam Duncan Clancy was interviewed on the, the panel that they had. And when she spoke, she came across very well. She articulated her message. She wasn't like some of the, the Tories that you had on throughout the day who were just, no to indirect, or there's no mandate. And, and it would, it's so boring and rehashed. It was like listening to a broken record. You know, she was very passionate. And so I have no doubt, in the brief time that we got to, to listen to the two of them, that these will be two very capable MSPs going into the future. And so their abilities there, and we also have the added extra of having that representation in Parliament. And seeing a diversity yesterday, when everyone was getting sworn in, was just really heartwarming to see. And I know it doesn't matter to some people. We want to make sure our governments are doing things right. But it is a nice little thing to see. So that's that's the first major point. And so it might matter to you. And 32 new MSPs were are now in the pump. So although the results are kind of the same in terms of the vote share, we do have 32 new MSPs because 32 were standing down. We have at least 32 new MSPs. So, and also what we've got to mention is that a lot of these people are women. So again, Scotland actively trying to contribute to a gender equal representation within the parliament. And again, so long as they're capable, we can't complain. So, Let's get into the results. And looking at them, yeah, there's some parties that can be happy with what happened, and there's some parties that will be a little disappointed, but overall, there's no party that was demolished, and there was no party that won amazingly. You could argue the SNP, but I think they maybe would have had their eye in that majority. Falling one seat short, though, Will they be complaining? I don't think so. But what we can take in across the board is that this election featured something that has been brewing for a wee while and it's been seen in a few times in recent elections, but we got to see it really come to fruition in this election, and that is tactical voting. It was very clear in the constituency seats that the SNP didn't win, 
that tactical voting was definitely taking place for the likes of the two Lib Dem seats that they won in mainland Scotland, such as Willie Rennie seats and Alex Cole Hamilton seat, their vote shares increased. And what you also saw was Labour and Conservative share it decreased. So it was quite clear that the unionist bloc in that area was contributing to whoever was most likely to win in order to push them over the line and stop the SNP picking up a few more and you must say that's worked for them because if the SNP had won one more seat such as Dumbarton which Labour managed to hold which at the time in 2016 was a a, I've forgotten the word but there was a majority I think it is majority of 107 seats seats Votes count. There's going to be a lot of mistakes in this show. I am quite nervous, to be honest. But, nonetheless, 107 votes between the top two parties. So, that could be easily overturned. But in the end, despite, again, anti-climax, all day they were saying, oh, Dumbarton's really close. You can, and I quote here, you can count the difference on your fingers and toes. The final result ended up and being Jackie Bailey won the seat with well over a thousand votes. I don't know about you guys, but I can't count to a thousand on my fingers and toes. So again, we had this anti-climax where they're building it up to be something, and it just ruined. Absolutely ruined. But nonetheless, the fact that tactical voting in all these areas has at least managed to stop the SNP getting that majority the Unionist bloc will see that as a victory. But breaking down the result for each party, when we look at the SNP, they managed to pick up, in total, one seat. And the reason for that is because they picked up three seats overall in the constituencies, which were East Lothian, Edinburgh Central, and Ayr. Now, two of those seats fall under the regional list of the south of Scotland, where the SNP picked up three seats at the last election. And because they won two more seats in the way that the electoral system works, which I'm not going to explain today because we'll be here for another full episode, because of that, they ended up, although picking up two seats in the region, lost two seats in the regional list vote. So they kind of balanced each other out, but they did manage to win Ruth Davidson's seat of Edinburgh Central, and so they've managed to pick up one seat overall. So that means they fall just one seat short of that majority that they were they were probably looking for. But then afterwards, of course, it's oh, you know, this isn't meant. You know, majorities aren't meant to happen in this, you know, election. You know, system. And so they were kind of downplaying the fact that oh, majorities never happen. Now, that's not what you were saying during the election campaign where you were looking for both votes SNP. But anyway, overall, it was a kind of successful election. The fact that the SNP have been elected for a historic fourth consecutive term really shows that they are popular. But what we kind of have to ask is, 
are they popular because of policy or are they popular because of one particular policy? And that's a big difference because the SNP in three terms has done quite a lot. In the last parliament, they did a few things that were very controversial, such as the Gender Recognition Act and obviously the Hate Crime Bill, which got a lot of attention. And you could look at things like education, where they get slated quite a lot. Health mm, is a bit up and down at times. But because of this one issue, independence, which I don't want to fall into one camp or the other because then I'm either going to get tons of unionists giving me hate, I'm going to get tons of nationalists giving me hate, and I'm, I don't care about that. That's you know, We're not here to be divided on one issue. We want to talk about all the issues. But independence is an issue that is taking up so much of Scotland's time. And when this election was going on, at times it felt like we were always coming back to one thing. Independence. And being in mind, we're in a time of economic recovery. Well, economic catastrophe, to be honest. I don't even know if we've entered the recovery stage yet. But because of all this... I was kind of looking forward to hearing some talk about what kind of strategies the parties had, and we got that at times, but it felt like we were constantly being dragged back to this issue of the Constitution. And of course, that obviously plays well with the media, because it doesn't matter what you say, you're going to get at least 50% approving of what you're reporting, and 50% angry with it, or the other way about, depending on which camp you're pleasing. So, it was just a bit annoying, and when you look at these results, it's got to be asked, well, have the SNP been elected because of their policy and the successes of it, or have they been elected because of this mandate for another referendum that the people of Scotland look for? And whatever it is, the SNP have won the election, and they have the democratic right to go ahead with whatever they want. They had a manifesto. People voted for it, and you know, in the constituency share, they got 49%. So, that's pretty much half of the, the vote. So, yes, they have a mandate. No matter what anyone tells you, yes, they have a mandate. That's very clear. The only issue that I kind of saw with the SNP was they lost a lot of individuals. If we look at the cabinet, they lost Jean Freeman, who was the Minister for Health, Rosanna Cunningham, who was the Minister for Environment and Climate Change, the Minister for Communities and Local Government, which was Aileen Campbell. They lost Mike Russell, a very big player in the party. And you've got to look at who did they replace these people with. Now, in the case of Mike Russell, who was the MSP for Argyle and Butte, he was replaced by... Uh, a young girl called Jenny Minto, who described herself on Twitter as a community activist, an islander, and an indie campaigner and accountant. And the kind of hesitation that I'm trying to get at here is, what we're seeing in the SNP is kind of a shift from real experience at times, and you know, big players in politics. And I feel at times they're being replaced by people 
who are just activists. And there's a difference between an activist and a politician. And we've all complained about politicians and what they do or don't do and how we want what politicians to be. But I have a reservation about, and yeah, we see it in the, the Tories as well. We're seeing, you know, people who are quite competent individuals, you know, very successful business people or lawyers or what have you. And they're being replaced by the likes of Douglas Ross, a linesman who who literally can only spout no to an indie ref. I genuinely think that's the only thing he is capable of saying. I don't think I heard one policy from him the entire campaign. And this replacement of real ability with activists in a time of economic recovery has me a bit hesitant on how successful this parliament's going to be. And I have my own theory on it. Maybe we'll come to it later on. Maybe we won't. But I think for now, let's move on to the next party, which is the Conservatives. And how I would describe their campaign is in one word. Meh. Just meh. It wasn't great they didn't pick up any seats you could argue it was successful because the Tories are once again the biggest opposition in Scotland I mean during the age of Thatcher you know, even the age of David Cameron that would have been like impossible to imagine but nonetheless it's happening and you would think oh well why are you not saying it's a success then Callum well the campaign for the Tories was truly awful Truly awful. Douglas Ross came across terribly in every single debate. Every MSP for them, whether it be Muddle Fraser or whoever, came across really poorly because they had one strategy. Vote for us to stop the SNP. Now, if you are in favour of the union, I respect your decision by the way, I, I I don't I'm not gonna say that oh you're wrong you're just a you know a union f- jack shagger or anything like that no I, I respect your decision to support the union and I respect the decision of people to want Scotland to be independent if you have legitimate arguments for or against either option but voting for a party solely because they don't want independence shouldn't be why you're voting. Because you have many other parties, such as the Lib Dems and Labour, to vote for. And I just don't understand why so many people, like 31 seats the Tories have picked up, solely because of people not wanting independence. And that's fine. But I can't believe that the success of our political parties is being driven by one issue. And that all the other policy that we should be talking about in terms of uh, an economic recovery, how are we going to get jobs back? How are we going to fix education? How are we going to look after the healthcare system, which has clearly got problems as shown by the pandemic? Why are we not talking about these issues? And instead we're talking about one issue and it's becoming very frustrating. And 
No matter what your political opinion is in independence, I think we can all agree that it's annoying when it's the only thing being discussed because there's so much more to talk about. But I just can't believe that after the unbelievably unsuccessful campaign that Douglas Ross ran, that they still did so well. In my own predictions beforehand, I'd put the Tories at 24 seats, and so I was very wrong there. Not too bad with the rest of them, actually, but yeah, I was very wrong there. But I think it's safe to say that the Tories are going to miss Ruth Davison. Politically, I didn't like her. I'll be straight up, guys. But she was good at what she did. She was phenomenal at what she did, which was get under the fingernails of Nicola Sturgeon. That's what she was there to do, and she did it very well. Douglas Ross is going to get eaten up, spat back out, not only by Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP, but by every other party. I predict that the next five years for the Tories are going to go very, very poorly. And if in 2026 they still end up getting 31 seats, I'm going to be very annoyed. Simple ass. You know, and I will always try and be neutral on this show, but see when, and see if you have true conservative values. I actually have no issue with that. I respect people who are conservatives. I just do not like the Tory party. I just don't. I don't like people in it. I don't like their mentality. I just don't like them. I'll get that straight out. So I've, I've, I swore to be honest on here. I don't like the Tory party. Like conservatives. I like conservative-valued people. Don't like the Tories. Simple as. And I think we can... A lot of you will maybe be in the same boat there. But moving on, let's go on to the next party. And the next party we are going to discuss is Labour. This was a successful election day. And you might be thinking, whoa, what are you talking about, Callan? Labour lost two seats. Well, it's a bit deeper than that. When this election campaign kicked off, maybe about a few months ago, when Richard Leonard was still the leader of Scottish Labour, and I bet about 99% of you have no idea who it is I just mentioned. Yep, he was the former Labour leader, Richard Leonard. When he was still in charge, Labour was polling at 14% in Scotland. That's shocking. Keir Hardy, the founder of the Labour Party, would be turning in his grave at that statistic. So, the fact that Anasawa came in and kind of inspired a lot of Labour voters to, to head out and vote for the Labour Party, the fact that they managed to pick it back up and get themselves up to a level where they are still at the same level as what they were in 2016. They've just lost two seats. Mm, yes, that's a disappointment, but the fact that it wasn't worse than that should be seen as a success for the, the Labour movement. But this is a worry. The fact that Scottish Labour are still trailing so far behind the Tories, they will not 
like that at all. However, the fact that Anasawa had quite a successful campaign for himself, he portrayed himself very well, wasn't perfect by no stretch, but he had a successful campaign. Everyone was kind of talking about how he did a good job, and so if he can carry that on into the next five years, then his next election campaign, Labour will be then eyeing up to maybe catch a few seats from the Tories and put themselves as the kind of proper opposition to the SNP. Not just in independence, but also in terms of policy, because policy is what matters, especially right now. So, a rather successful campaign for Labour, all things considered. It could have been worse. But moving on to our next party, the Greens. Beforehand, when we were looking at the polls, a lot of them had the Greens polling it around. Did we get 10 seats, 11 seats? And this usually happens with the Greens. They poll well, but they underperform. But it was a successful election. They picked up two seats, which puts them on eight. And throughout the campaign, it felt like the Greens had this energy around their movement. And that's very optimistic to see, especially going into the next five years or 10, 15, 20 years when the climate crisis is really going to pick up and become the major issue that it should be. And the fact that the Greens were doing so well should be taken as a success. And the interesting thing with the Greens is that they have co-leaders. They have two leaders in charge. And at the moment they are Patrick Harvey, who's been a co-leader for some time now, and Lorna Slater, who is Canadian, if I'm correct, and also an engineer. And I love that, by the way. See, seeing that a politician is not a lawyer or a business person or somebody's son. The fact that she comes from a profession that is also relevant to the main issues that she's trying to, to discuss, that's amazing. We need more engineers in Parliament. We need more teachers. We need more police officers. We need real people in Parliament. And I put the Greens' performance solely down to Lorna Slater. I thought she was excellent. Now, policies aside, policies aside, I think the Greens are a bit too radical for, for my own personal liking. But Lorna Slater was someone for the movement or the demographic that the Greens were wanting to go after, which is especially young people. Lorna Slater came across very enthusiastically but yet not crazy. She was very composed at times, very articulate in her message, quite sarky at times, which pulls well with the, with the Scots. And just in general, I felt that she was the kind of captivating presence as a leader that a small party like the Greens needed, that Patrick Harvey doesn't quite have. And I'm not going to go in and be mean about people, except for Douglas Ross, obviously, but I'm not that much of a fan of Patrick Harvey either, but Lorna Slater was terrific, and looking at you know, social media after she maybe had a 
performance in the TV or something like that. It was always quite positive feedback. And so the Greens must take this as a positive. There'll never be a, a major party. They'll never be winning 20, 30 seats or challenging for government. But the Greens are there to be the nuisance in the environment. I don't say nuisance in a bad way. It's actually in a very positive way because the environment is a key issue for a lot of people for very understandable reasons and reasons that I sympathise with, especially as a young person. I'm 21, I hope that's considered young. But the Greens are there to talk about the environment and going into the next 10 years where this should be a major issue, especially in recovery, the fact that the Green Party is holding even stronger position in the Parliament should be taken taken as a good thing. And so it will be very interesting to see where they go next. I think we're going to see a lot more from Lorna Slater. She has had an excellent campaign. The Greens have had an excellent campaign. Hopefully they're not disappointed that they didn't pick up more seats. Like I said at the beginning, this was an anticlimactic election where it kind of is representative of what we had before. But this was a good election campaign for them. And going forward, they'll look to continue that. Now we move on to the final main party that won seats. And that is the Lib Dems. <sighs> this was poor. The Lib Dems, once upon a time, were in the coalition government with Labour in Scotland. But as has been across the UK ever since the coalition government of 2010 to 15 with the Tories and Lib Dems with Nick Clegg, Lib Dems have just never done well. They picked up the two seats in Orkney and Shetland. That's always going to happen. The Islanders like the Lib Dems for reasons I really should research. I don't really understand why. But then the two seats that they they gained in the mainland were, of course, Alex Cole Hamilton's and Edinburgh West, if I am correct. I think I am. And then North East Fife, which was Willie Rennie's. Now, despite this being quite a poor campaign, you know, they lost a seat, which now puts them fourth. When Willie Rennie won his seat, he then appeared in the BBC with the biggest grin on his face that I had seen from anyone throughout the election campaign and all the results. So how can someone who who didn't do well be so happy? And it's just that way. Do you know that way when your kids... I don't have kids, but you know that way when your kids you come last in sports day and you're like, oh well, you get a medal for trying. It kind of felt like that. And <laughs> let's face it, the Lib Dems are basically irrelevant in Scotland. They're going to be a nuisance here and there. But what I think it showed with Willie Rennie's own personal reaction is the fact that he's just happy to be there. And I think what we're also going to see in the next we while, certainly before the next election campaign, is that Willie Rennie himself will step down. There was talk about him throwing his name into the hat for the presiding officer role in Parliament, which is basically like the Speaker of the, the Parliament, um, for anyone that's not aware. or Basically, they, 
they make sure the debate and the conversations in Parliament are maintained at a reasonably civil level. Um, success of that's questionable. But Willie Rennie will probably step down and who will take his place? Most likely going to be Alex Cole Hamilton, who I just mentioned, who was part of the committee that was investigating Nicola Sturgeon not that long ago with the Alex Salmon case. And he kind of has a big national profile now. And I would very much expect that Willie Rennie, after so many years of service as leader of the party, which I've got, got to commend, will step down. He'll just be happy to be there. And Alex Cole Hamilton will take up the mantle of Lib Dem leader. And across the board, they are a small party, but the fact that they're now seeing a party like the Greens have doubled the number of seats as them that should be seen as a disappointment for the Lib Dems, given that historically they've not been huge, but they've been a player. So the fact that they're continuing to lose influence will be a disappointment. But again, we've got to ask the question, is this because Scotland is becoming a one-issue country and that the Lib Dems are just not as strong in the unionist voice as the Conservatives? If that's the case, that's really rather annoying because the Lib Dems, I would argue, are more representative of the political persuasion of the Scottish people than the Conservatives are. Especially, well, Conservatives will pick up seats in and around the, the borders, especially. Maybe a few in some rural areas, but the fact that the Conservatives are doing so well in the likes of Eastwood in, in places like that. Mm, the Lib Dems really should be doing better in these seats. But overall, that's us finished with all the parties that gain seats. So now we move on to talking about some of the parties that didn't gain seats. And these parties include the likes of Alaba. Now, what we've got to discuss here is we're not going to go into the policies of Alba because they're very similar to the SNP, just a bit more centrist. The SNP in recent years has headed more into a socialist, very radical left-wing persuasion. But Alba's looking to maintain what the SNP kind of historically were, which are a kind of left-of-centre persuasion. Alaba obviously won no seats. In fact, they didn't even come close. In the regional list, you're looking for around 5 to 6% to at least be considered for gaining a seat. Alaba got nowhere near. And so what we kind of want to talk about here is tactical voting again. What Alaba's main priority was was this supermajority that you've probably have heard of. So what was the idea of the supermajority? Well, the idea was to try and get as many SNP votes in the list over to Alaba so that Alaba would gain seats and the number of seats for the Tories and Labour would go down. And also for the Greens, to be honest. 
but instead the SNP said no. Both votes SNP. And what that ended up with was that in the whole of Scotland for the regional list, 1,047,000 votes were given to the SNP. They gained two seats. So that's one seat for every 520 odd thousand. Think about that figure. That's a lot. And I saw some folks saying, well, you shouldn't be ashamed for who you vote for. Who you want to vote for is who you want to vote for, and that's fine. And I understand that. I understand the, the sentiment behind it. The only thing is, if Scotland has been this kind of one-issue party, one-issue conversation, and the independence is really all that a lot of people care about, certainly SNP members or Tory you know, members, then you've got to look at what your opponents have been doing. The, the Tories, Labour and Lib Dems, all their voters work together. And George Galloway kind of, and his leafleting was encouraging this as well. For tactical voting to push up the share of whoever was holding that seat, whether it be you know, the Tories in Eastwood or the Freeshire, whether it be the Lib Dems in North East Fife, or whether it be Labour in Dumbart. Across the board, tactical voting in the Unionist side took place. But zero tactical voting happened for the SNP. Or practically zero. And so, instead of having in the Parliament even more voices contributing positively towards the independence conversation, you now have as many as 31 Tory MSPs who are just going to be a nuisance to you. And so the question's got to be asked, well, why didn't the SNP want more pro-independence voices? They didn't even say vote for the Greens. Certainly in places like um, Glasgow on the regional list, SNP won every Glasgow constituency seat. All, if I'm right, eight or nine seats usually there are. They won every single one, and yet didn't say, vote green on the, the list, because they weren't going to win any constituency seat, or regional seats in there. They didn't say, vote greens. And you've got to ask why. Well, you could argue the point, well, they were looking for the majority government that they, they wanted. But then after the election, they were saying, oh, well, no, we never thought we were going to get a majority. Oh, it doesn't happen here. A majority doesn't mean independence. You know, we just need to win the election for independence. And if that's your mentality, then surely you should then be saying, right, our job now is to try and get as many pro indie parties in and to cut down on the Tory voice in Parliament which is really the thorn in your side. Because the more Tories there are spouting the same kind of, you know, once in a lifetime or once in a generation rhetoric, then the more a nuisance they're going to be. So surely you'd want to cut that down. And fair enough, maybe you don't like Alibaba. That's absolutely fine, by the way. 
There's a lot of reasons not to. But I can't even understand. Why didn't you say, you know, vote for the Greens? Because going into a possible talking coalition, it looks like they're going to form a minority. They're not going to go into coalition with the Greens. But surely, if in an event that you would need to, the fact that you've kind of helped them out in the election campaign get more seats is going to be a very big boost for you going into the, con- the, the those discussions. But for me, what I think it shows is that the SNP hierarchy, and I'm going to talk about the hierarchy here for a second. Nicola Sturgeon, her husband Peter Murrow, and the smattering of others about there. They want it to be their way or no way. And we can see this with the likes of Joanna Cherry, who voiced what some would argue is valid concerns over the Gender Recognition Act in a same kind of manner that J.K. Rowling and that have gotten into some trouble for, safe to say. And as soon as that happened, Joanna Cherry was dropped from the front bench at Westminster, who's a very capable and high-profile MP, by the way. She was one of the ones that took the government to court over Brexit. So, and then there is the conspiratorial argument that was being made by Alex Salmond that they wanted him out, and you've got to ask, well, why is that? Well, because there are some in the party who want independence a bit more radically, such as a wildcat referendum, where we just hold one without the approval of the UK government. Sorry, I was taking a sip of water. You know, but I don't, is it the case that the SNP hierarchy, and this is just me talking about my own political theory, I have studied it, I am well aware of what goes on, what politicians do. So in my view, in the way that I see it, it seems as if the SNP hierarchy want it to be their way or no way. And this becomes quite worrying because when it comes to the manifesto pledges, how many people are voting for the SNP based on independence or based on policy? And then, if it is the case of they're voting for independence solely, then we're voting for a party that is going to push through a manifesto that we maybe didn't want. And in the attempt to get support for independence, the SNP is trying to appeal to basically any little group and that's across the board in order to try and appear inclusive accepting and again I'm not saying these are negative things but I I did my dissertation in this by the way and what I found in, in my findings was that the SNP right now is currently and this is the membership of the SNP let alone voters the SNP membership is made up of people very far left wing and some people who are very centrist but just slight of left. And the fact that so many people are getting behind one policy manifesto that's really pushing radically left wing, it worries me that the SNP are pushing a manifesto that the voters aren't necessarily looking to be implemented. And look, we're never going to know what all 
you know, two million near of the electorate really voted for. Only they will know. But the fact that this is going on worries me. And especially when those who then voice opposition in the SNP do, they're immediately dropped. And in the case of Alaba, they were very intensely vilified. And this kind of language that was being used by the SNP was a worry for me because we always like to think that the SNP are one of the parties that are very open and will accept their wrongdoings and that. But it seems as if they're becoming more aggressive in their own stance. And again, like I mentioned before, they were replacing some experience and quality. And maybe sometimes you look at who's getting elected and it's like, well, and this is the exact same for the Tories, by the way. Exact same for the Tories. The quality and competent individuals are being replaced by yes men and women. People who are just going to nod their head and vote with whatever you, you say. I love how when I said nod your head, I felt the need to nod anyway. You guys can't see me, but there you go. Pointless. <laughs> anyway, it feels as if that may be the case. And that's worrying. I feel like that's worrying. Maybe you don't. Uh, let me know. This, you, know you guys are le leading the conversation. How do you guys feel about that? Do you feel as if I'm on the right track? Or do you think I'm totally wrong? Do you think that the SNP were voted on their manifesto pledges and they are getting votes from all ranges of the political spectrum because of the policies? Like, what do you think? Maybe I'm just putting my tinfoil hat on. Maybe I am. You guys can tell me. And of course, feel free to message and let me know. But it is, it's something that has worried me for a wee while now. And it's something that will continue to worry me. But let's see how the next parliament doing. If the SNP continue to go into some controversial territory, you know, again, such as the Hate Crime Bill and Gender Recognition Act, which kind of split a lot of people. If that is the case, then more of these controversial conversations are going to pop up. And they're not, I wouldn't even say they're controversial, to be honest. They're difficult conversations that we need to have. But if anyone within the party voices their, their opposition, and then they're immediately dropped, let's see what's going to happen in the next wee while. Because if that is the case, that's worrying. That is worrying, especially when the party has around 49% of the overall vote of the nation. Anyway, that's all the party we could talk about. The alliance with George Galloway. Uh, just go and watch the Muppet show, that's really all the information you need there. We could talk about the Scottish Family Party. What a bunch of psychos. Jeez, oh, I remember, I remember vividly reading their manifesto leaflet when it came through. Jeez, oh, and pretty much every other party is irrelevant. So, I just needed to mention the Scottish Family Party because it's just a, a right laugh, isn't it? Anyway, what we're going to finish on is what are some of the, the short-term effects? What could, what could we expect to see? Well, like I mentioned, could we see a change of leadership in the Lib Dems? Is Willie Rennie going to stand down and perhaps Alex Cole Hamilton 
take his place? I think so. In terms of a minority-majority government, and I'm just looking off my notes here, in terms of what's going to be a minority-majority, it's looking like it's going to be a minority. The SNP have 64 seats out of 129, so it's very likely that they will make up a minority government, and the Greens will basically vote one more for them, and then basically everything will pass, so long as they get the Green approval. In terms of presiding officer, we got that information yesterday, and I'm pretty sure it's Alison Simpson. I really hope I'm correct there. I'm going to continue talking as I then search for this on my phone. So, presiding officer, there were a few. There was talk that Patrick Harvey actually would throw his hat in the ring there, but no, nah, he decided against that. So, here we go. Presiding officer is. Alison Johnson. Ah, Johnson. I knew it was an Alison. Alison Johnson, who was a, a long-serving, uh, I think since 2011, long-standing MSP for the Green Party. So it's very nice. What you see with Speaker of the House in Westminster, or the presiding officer, is that parties will take turns. It's a neutral role. You throw your political affiliation at the windy, and you're completely neutral at that point. But what this now means is that take one seat away, the SNP sit in 64 seats, opposition parties sit in 64 seats, with the presiding officer, if there ever is a 64-64 split, then casting her vote for whatever persuasion she, she feels. In terms of independence, I suppose we need to talk about it, and so I'm going to end this recording, and then start my new one, so bear with me. Yeah, so I can only record in 30 minute slots, and then I need to start a new one, by the way, so if ever it feels throughout the show that I've abruptly stopped, that's because I've stopped the recording, I need to start again. So, I started a new one, because this might go on for a while. Independence. What is going to happen? Let's get it out of the way. Once in a generation. That is not an argument. Okay? Here's a fun fact for you. Politicians exaggerate. Yeah, it's really rather annoying, isn't it? Of course they exaggerate. And what is better to say at a time of a major referendum, a major life decision, than to say, we're only going to get one shot at this. Of course it wasn't going to be a once in a generation. And it's not a leg to stand on. It would be a leg to stand on. If at all, it was legally binding. But it wasn't. There is nothing in the Edinburgh Agreement. Or the... What was it? It was the Edinburgh Agreement. Was it the Abroth Agreement? Whatever it was. The Independence Agreement that this was going to be a once in a lifetime. There was no mention of that. Technically, you could have this referendum as many times as you want, so long as the UK government grant it, because the constitution is a reserved power for Westminster. So what's going to happen? Well, guess what? The SNP won the election. If you then look at the pro-independence parties, if you take the regional share, 
which is probably the more appropriate one. Independence parties won 50.1% of the vote. There's your mandate as well. Pro-independence parties won this election. There's a pro-independence majority in the House. A pro-independence party won the election and will form the government. Pro-independence parties won over 50% of the vote. Independence has been given the mandate. And again, I reiterate, if you're a unionist voter, listen to this, I respect your choice. I don't think you're an idiot for supporting the union. There's some very, very valid arguments for doing so. And there's some very valid arguments for supporting independence. I'm not going to divide here and say that someone's evil for a political opinion based on the constitutional argument. You're allowed your opinion, and my my position is to, or my duty, is to create this honest conversation and hopefully can you know convey these arguments in a civil way. Unless it's with Douglas Ross. He's a mug. Anyway, as I say, the mandate is there. And I know it's annoying for you guys who are unionist supporters. I'm hesitant on, in all honesty, I'm hesitant on independence. I lean yes, but I'm very hesitant on it, especially right now. I didn't vote for the SNP this election because I don't think now is the right time for independence. I want to focus on recovery first. And then we can talk about independence. And I know some people will say, well, let's say two or three years for a recovery, and then we can have independence. No. If you think this recovery is going to take you two or three years, you may need to pick up an economics or a history textbook. This is going to go on for quite some time. And you want to be going into the independence stage on the best possible footing. And we're not going to have that in the next five years. However, I concede. I didn't vote for the SNP or that, but pro-independence parties won this election. So guess what? They have the mandate. Same way the SNP had the policy about universal basic income. They won the election. They have a mandate. Doesn't matter what it is. If it's in their manifesto, they have a mandate. Because that's what the people voted for. So, I know it's frustrating for you people who are maybe unionists listening. I feel your pain. I do. But, do you know what? Ultimately, people are going to have varying opinions from you. And ultimately, if someone else wins the, the, the election, you've got to roll with it. That's how democracy works. What isn't democracy is someone winning an election saying, you know, let's say, let's take a ludicrous thing. I'm going to ban homework. Well, 59% of the kids across Scotland voted for that. And then you turn around and say, oh, no, you can't do that. Well, everyone's voted for it. so. Surely you've got to go ahead with it. That's not democracy. Democracy is that people vote, in this case, in an election or in a referendum, which is a direct view of how the people feel. And then you go with the result. You can't pick and choose what it is you want and don't want. The same way, it was very clear that the day after the Brexit referendum, that if you held another one, it probably would have went the other way. But, 
I, I hated the idea of Brexit. I still do, to be honest. And I was ardently against it. The day after the referendum, you you just got to accept the result and you've got to try and make best of what happens. I would encourage unionist voters to do the exact same. This didn't go your way. It's annoying, I know. But you just got to get on with it. And you know what? Again, I'll mention the percentage. 50.1% of people voted for this. For pro-independence parties. That's not a lot. And see if Boris Johnson wants to fully put this to bed with the once-in-a-generation thing. You allow it to happen. You allow a referendum. And you put a wee legal clause in it. If you lose, this is... You cannot hold another referendum for 15, 20, 30 years. I think we could all agree to that. And that way, as a nation, whatever the position or the result, we get to move on. I wouldn't be opposed to that. Of course, a lot of people would be, and perhaps rightly so as well. But there has been talk again of will independence head to the courts. Well, Michael Gove came out the other day and said, no, it won't. And then Nicola Sturgeon came out and said, no, it won't. Okay. But on five o'clock on Saturday, Nicola Sturgeon came out and said, there's a mandate, democracy needs to prevail, and there's going to be another referendum. Well, in that case, the only option you now have is to get permission from Boris Johnson. <laughs> and that's not happening anytime soon. Let me tell you, folks, he can he can shoot somebody in the House of Commons and he'll still get away with it. I mean, he's under investigation for wallpaper at the moment. He'll lose that. He's been found of breaking the law with so many things and just... Uh... I hope you can hear the pain in my voice as I'm saying these things. Again, I'll be honest, I don't like Boris Johnson. I don't know how people can. I really don't. Anywho, I've actually lost track of what I was trying to say now. Oh, will he grant a referendum? No, he won't. He can do whatever he wants, big bojo. That leaves the independence movement and the SNP a bit of a stalemate because if you're not going to take it to the court then what are you going to do? You could hold an advisory referendum which is this a bit different from the wildcat referendum that Alaba was kind of proposing where you hold it and then whatever the result if it was yes you accept it and then you just push ahead with independence it's not how it works you need legal approval from Westminster is a small chance it could happen. Very, very, very unlikely though. And if you held an advisory one where everyone would turn out and vote whatever way, the issue you would then have is well, basically, what you do is you get the result and you present it to Parliament and you'd say, Here, by the way, it's clear that people want independence, grant us a legal referendum, and then do it again. 
that would be rather annoying. However, and again, I've lost track of what I was going to say. I will do this a lot, guys. I do like a ramble. But, um, what was I saying? Independence. Wildcat. Something or other. Advisory. I was talking about advisory referendums, wasn't I? Yeah, I could stop recording and do this again, but then I've just done 10 minutes of this, so that'd be rather annoying. Um, anywho, we're just going to move on. If the SNP really want to talk about independence, and again, I'm going to get my tinfoil hat on in a minute, but if they're going to talk about independence, give us your plan. What are you actually wanting? Are you wanting an advisory referendum? Are you wanting you know, to do it in the official channel, which I've kind of spoke about? But what are you going to do if he says no? You've not told us that. If he does say no, and you're not going to take him to the court, then that doesn't leave you with many options. Or does it leave you with any? Because they ruled out a wildcat referendum as well. So, what are they going to do? And I think I speak for all of us there because this is an uncertain economic time. When it comes to the kind of the biggest issue in Scotland, we kind of need to know what you're planning. Are you going to go ahead with a referendum? Oh, I've remembered what I was going to say. In the case of an advisory referendum, what the unionist parties could do is just say, don't turn up, don't turn out. Yeah, they could win it by 98%, but that's not truly representative. So anything they present to the parliament would be false. It wouldn't be a true representation. So it'd be a waste of time. And then you could make the argument, oh, look at the SNP wasting taxpayers' money, yada, yada, yada. All that mumbo-jumbo. So an advisory referendum isn't really ideal either. The best way to do it would be to get it through the, the official channel like we did in 2014. If, he, if Boris says no, you take it through the courts. It would probably win, to be honest, because democracy has obviously given a mandate. So to reject it in the courts would be pretty insane. But nonetheless... What is going to happen with independence? Who knows? Certainly in the short term. Who knows? Now we move on to some of the longer term effects of this election. What is going to happen? Well, the first and foremost thing is economic recovery. The SNP have won the election. The policies that they put forward are going to go ahead. And we'll just need to wait and see what happens there. It's very likely the SNP will pass everything with the approval of the Greens. But in terms of where they stand in the kind of social problems, the SNP and Greens line up pretty much the same. So it's very likely that anything the SNP put forward will probably go ahead. The big thing is in terms of the Constitution, What's going to happen? That is the big issue. Now, the English party leaders and Starmer, and obviously Boris, cannot look at what's going on and think, this is sustainable, because it's quite clear that it doesn't matter if it's this generation, or the next generation, or the next generation, Scotland's going to become independent. And I'm very much in the mindset that it's not a question of if, it is a question of when. So what are the English parties going to do about it? Especially 
Labour, who, given the losing seats in the likes of Hartlepool and all that, kind of need Scotland to get back in favour with them. So what are they going to do? Well, there's two directions. There could be talk about a federalised UK, which is a position that the Lib Dems once upon a time held. That's very unlikely, and I, I don't really see that coming to any sort of fruition. What I do see, of course we're talking hypotheticals here, what I do see happen is Labour will give up in Scotland, English Labour anyway. They know we're going to vote SNP up here, and that's it. You're not going to win seats anymore. And instead, what we will see is the party that used to represent Scotland and the heart of Scotland is going to move more and more towards that of the Conservatives, of this kind of populist, right-wing, isolationist, you know, falling for the deluded images of grandeur that were some big empire, all that sort of thing. Uh, flag shaggers is probably a better way of putting it. So, if that is the case, then not only is the, the Labour Party, as we know it, unsustainable, but in terms of what happens with Scotland and the constitutional issue, that it's becoming increasingly narrowed in what we will do. I think independence is inevitable. I think it's definitely going to happen as a case of when. Obviously right now, it's recovery. It is all about recovery, and the SNP have fortunately even said that as well. And so, I mean, and to you guys, I hope you're doing okay during this time. I know for me, you know, I've throughout the lockdown, I've lost four jobs. You know, I've have not seen my friends in such a long time. I used to have quite a, an active social life. That's been obliterated. Oh, if you could call it active. And I've just spent my last year at uni doing it all online, doing a dissertation online. So I've been in the fortunate position where I haven't lost anyone to COVID. I know that there's many people out there who will not be in that fortunate position and my heart goes out to you. What is fortunate though is it looks like we're on the trajectory to get out of this. It's been one hell of a well, year now, well over a year. And by the end it'll probably be closer to two years, but we're heading in the right direction. And my hope is that as a nation, we do unite. And we focus on recovery. Because that's what we need to do. And then, there are major issues we need to confront. Our education system is in tatters. Our NHS needs proper funding. The climate crisis is increasingly becoming disastrous. And our time to actually tackle it is decreasing rapidly as well. So there's major issues we need to talk about and we need to solve. We can either do that united, trying to collectively work towards these solutions, or 
we can do everything divided. One thing that annoyed me during the campaign was, I think it was during the first debate, Douglas Ross was asked, would you ever work with the SNP? And he said he would work with no party that would be in favour of independence. We're in a time of economic catastrophe and the opposition party has said anything the SNP put in, on the table, we will reject. Guys, we're not going to get anywhere with this tribal, archaic way of thinking. We need to work together to solve these problems because they affect us all. COVID affects us all. Youth unemployment will affect us all, whether that's you right now or whether it's your kids. The NHS affects us all. These are major issues, and I don't care whether you support a political union or you don't. Right now, we need to focus on recovery. That's my honest opinion, and I'm a bit befuddled by those who think we need to be thinking about independence right now. Like people who are thinking, oh, we need to hold a referendum by the end of the year. No, we don't. No, we don't. And the important thing is we focus towards recovery and we, we get through this crisis. And then afterwards, when we know that it is behind us, we can talk about independence. But we have two options. We can do that and go through this process united towards a common goal of getting through the crisis in the best way possible. Or we can do it in our little tribal clans where we just disagree with people because of one issue that we don't agree with them on and we just hold in contempt any solution brought to the table. Put these tribal attitudes in relation to the constitution side and focus on the issues that matter to us all. And so, with all that down, we have come to the end of the podcast. So, thank you very much for anyone who even made it this far. Maybe you've made it the entire episode. I hope you have. And thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to listen to what I have to say. And it's that way maybe you disagree with everything that I have said this election. You've disagreed with every single thing that I have said about everything that's gone on. Let me know. Because, yeah, it's all well and good. I'm talking. I know it's called Tate Talk, but hey-ho. It's all about what you guys think. And I want you guys to be leading this conversation. So, follow me on social media. Get the email sent in to Tate talk at outlook.com and lead the conversation because it is all about you. This show won't exist without anyone to listen to it. So if you can get contributing, remember, can't complain if you don't contribute. But honestly, get involved as much as possible. It, it takes two minutes to send a wee quick message and hey, here, you get your question answered in the show. So, I mean, I know I'd be doing it if I could. So, this is all down to you guys. I hope you've enjoyed this show. Finally, 
from now on, these will be better. These will be better. Bear in mind, this is the first one that I have ever done. This could be absolutely terrible when I listen back to it. I really hope not. But going ahead, hopefully these will be much better. I am incredibly nervous. I'm a guy who's performed on stage in front of, you know, 200 people. And I'm I'm more nervous for doing this podcast than I have been for any show. So, yes, I hope that as this becomes more natural and, you know, I continue to do more and more shows, that, and hopefully when I'm answering your questions as well, you guys will make me feel more comfortable. So, going ahead, hopefully these are better. I do apologise for any mistakes. I, I haven't heard a bus go past. Usually when a bus goes past, my entire house shakes. Or, amazingly, even better, my dog has stayed quiet this entire time. That's that's unheard of in this house. So, I don't know what's happened. I'll probably go downstairs and my bin has been raided. But, who knows? We'll have to see. But, with all that down, all that remains to be said is thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you have taken something from this show. Follow me on social media. It's very simple. Tate Talk is the name to search for. And get your questions submitted in. You can Facebook message, DM me on Twitter, or send an email. And you guys will have the chance to lead the conversation for the next show. Thank you all very much for joining me today. I've been your host, Callan Tate. And until next time, goodbye.